it's a tragic but fascinating story, the, the murder of four young people at the University of Idaho in November and a custody or a suspect rather in custody now. We're learning more about this person and it seems like his his background even adds more to the mystery around this um, this terrible, terrible crime. And joining us now is Jeffrey Lustick. He is an attorney. He's not involved in this case, but has served as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney as well, and has been watching this like the rest of us. And great to talk with you, Jeff. Yeah. Hey, Joe. I have really been watching this case because one of the aspects that I, I thought was interesting is how the police in the small town of Moscow, Idaho, have approached this case right from the beginning. They essentially put a full lid on all the information from getting out in the in the news media. And as you know, from the times when I've been on KGMI, I enjoy watching the news media spin and spin and spin and turn and turn and turn when they can't get what they want. And that has totally been the case here. Um, the police have denied all of the details, including uh, to the present time, uh, why they think that this suspect is the murderer. And I think the news media is so used to having everything provided to them and all the questions answered. Uh, but there was a tactical reason for doing this. Uh, Idaho has some, um, some, some very strict laws when it comes to making statements in the press by the police department, by the sheriff's department, and by prosecutors because they don't want to prejudice the jury pool. This case is ultimately going to be headed to a jury trial. It would be in the small town where this happened. And by making statements into the press now, it could cause um, some difficulty in picking a fair and impartial jury down the road. So the police, the hats, my hat's off go to the police. They, they totally uh, got their suspect, and they did not sell out all the information to the press. And it has been interesting to watch mainstream media just really not be able to swallow that at all. Yeah, and uh, now they said that they couldn't release more information, say, about the um, possible motive and other other information about this uh, and what led them to this suspect until the charges are actually brought there in Idaho. So I guess that would mean he has to come back, be brought back and all that. Um, do you think even at, yeah. the, at that point, do you think they might still hold back on some information? So the charges have actually been filed in the county court. I believe it's Monroe County in Idaho. But they're under seal, according to state law. And um, the the defendant did make an appearance in the Commonwealth Court there in Pennsylvania where he waived extradition. And um, he has already been appointed a public defender in the small town who is making statements that the defendant uh, denies involvement in this uh, in these tragic murders and is looking forward to exoneration in court. So we know that the defendant is planning to mount a vigorous defense. It doesn't sound like the kind of case that's going to result in a plea bargain, although something could happen down the road. But at this point, they're they're issuing denials from the defense side. Um, but, but, Joe, the charges have already been filed, which means that the, uh, the, the prosecuting attorney in, in, that, in the judicial district has already filed a criminal affidavit of probable cause, but it's sealed, and it will not be unsealed until the defendant is transported to the county court and makes the first appearance. Um, so that could happen later this week, uh, potentially by Friday. Uh, they could also have a, a session on Saturday, but at any rate, it will be next week. And it is possible also that certain details of that probable cause affidavit 
could be redacted and held from the public. So we should be prepared for that. But I think we'll certainly know more about the motive. We'll certainly know more about the means. And, uh, you know, we could see some details coming out from that court proceeding. And just looking at this person's background, the suspect, um, and we don't know if uh, even if he knew these people, the victims, or had any contact with them, but um, just that his his involvement, his study of of criminology, his reaching out to people who had committed crimes, to at least what we're reading, you know, what we have seen reported, that he reached out to to you know to get a a sense of what people's mindset was when they committed terrible crimes and it just uh, as i said at the beginning it really adds to the mystery and the intrigue surrounding this whole case well and and what should be understood is that in a court of law those details may not be admissible under the rules of evidence details like that are are purely circumspect uh, circumstantial and circumspect to the case at hand they don't necessarily prove that someone was a murderer because they were interested in these things when they're studying for a Ph.D. in criminology. I was a criminology student, and I actually sent letters like that into the prison, and I interviewed murderers as well. That was part of the coursework. That was what you were supposed to do as a criminology student. So while, again, you know, there's been a lot of tendency to make this case into the news media and make it splashy, the police department, the prosecuting attorney, they have done an excellent job of keeping a full lid on all of the details. And I don't know that those pieces of information will be admissible when it comes time for the trial. As, but uh, it, is, it, is, it is an interesting footnote because, you know, we, I, have, I have represented in the past firemen accused of arson. I have represented police officers that are accused of sexual offenses. I have defended uh, people in government that are accused of committing uh, crimes of embezzlement. So, the fact that you're interested in something and that you study in a particular area may or may not mean anything in the long term. I, I suppose, yeah. I say, hey, look at this person. He uh, he binge-watched um, uh, Criminal Minds, so there must be something yeah. going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see or what he you was, mean. He was a big fan of the Law & Order TV series, so yeah. he must be the murderer. You know, I mean, <laughs> right. we, we, we tend to forget, and, and, and I spend as, a, as both a— both as a part-time judge and as a prosecutor and as defense counsel, you spend a lot of time in what's called the voir dire, where you're interviewing potential jurors, and you're trying to find out whether jurors can remain impartial and open-minded, whether they have an inelastic predisposition on the case, whether they've watched it on 60 Minutes or read about it in the New York Times. And you do the best you can to try to get a neutral jury that is not influenced by news media. And one of the issues that might come up in this case really fast is whether an impartial jury pool is available in this small county. And there may be a motion to move the case to Boise, or it may move to Standpoint. Um, Remember that the trials involving Randy Weaver and Ruby Ridge, those cases were moved out of the Northern District, out of the area, because they needed to find jurors who could be brought in that could be fair and impartial. So um, that's going to be an issue whenever you have the police, the prosecutor, making statements in the press. Because those statements have not been made, it's going to be harder for the defense to bring a change of venue motion. So a lot of this is going to be strategic legal moves that follow after the arraignment. And I think this case, when it goes to trial, it's probably going to be a year. It, it would surprise me if it actually begins in any time sooner than 12 months from now.
Yeah, and just uh, by the reports that I've read uh, since this uh, man's arrest, that uh, they say they're still working on the case. They're still actively investigating it and trying to find out uh, even more about uh, the his background, whether anyone else may have been involved, and and any other details that might be involved. So we we know that the the white Hyundai Elantra was seen in the area. Uh, we we have leaks uh, reportedly from the FBI. ABC News was reporting that today that there was a DNA match between the suspect and I think it was a cousin, and they used one of these uh, DNA databases. You know, when you order like a kit for Christmas and you submit your DNA because you're interested in genealogy, uh-huh. um, you also, when you submit your DNA, you, you sign a waiver that says that your DNA could be used for other purposes. So at some point, uh, at least what we're hearing through the leaks, as reliable as that may or may not be, that his DNA was found at the scene. But there's also been some comments that this was a party house and that there may have been literally hundreds of people that have left DNA at the scene. And believe it or not, just DNA at the scene doesn't mean that the person is guilty of the crime. Now, if there were defensive, uh, if there were like defensive injuries or, or that the, the, the victims had fought back and they find skin or hair cells or something under the fingernails of the victims, and that matches the suspect, then it's pretty much game over. So this case may or may not turn on DNA, probably will from what we're hearing. There's no eyewitnesses, and there probably will be no admission. So that that's the stage for a litigated trial in that small county. And as you watch the, you know, as we all have, uh, the investigation or what was what was revealed about the investigation and, you know, the so much information being withheld and frustration expressed by some of the family members of the victims. And were you pretty confident, though, with all the agencies, the FBI on down involved in this investigation, pretty confident that they would find the suspect after not too long? No. Oh, no. I think I was like the majority of the public wondering, you know, what this police department was doing, whether they were in over their head, whether they had a clue at all. Um, you know, they went all through the Christmas holiday where, where students were scared. You know, my daughter is at a campus in Oregon, and she was even scared because of what was going on here. So, you know, I think a lot of people were judgmental about the police chief and judgmental about prosecutors thinking, it's just a podunk town. They don't know what they're doing. They don't handle murder investigations. You know, where's the Idaho State Police? Where's the FBI? Why isn't anything happening? When the reality was, at you know, the moment when this happened, they had some idea as to who was involved, and they had some idea as to where this person was. And they were, uh, I, I, I read one report in the New York Times today that the FBI had the home in Pennsylvania under surveillance for three days. So. Wow. You know, hats off to the police department. I think that they have uh, shown that they really were a professional organization this whole time. You know, yes, they didn't have their public information officer out there showing a picture of the suspect and painting a picture of what happened. But, you know, in the long-term consideration here, that's how you win a case. That's the way that you win in court. And that's the biggest thing you can do as a prosecutor for the victim's families is get the conviction and get the sentence. All right. um, you yeah. don't you, you don't really do much when you're in the press and you're in you're fighting this case in the press. And and my my I have lots of respect for the chief of police because that's what they did. They focused on the police work. They did the gumshoe detective work. 
They found their suspect. They arrested their suspect. And they're not using the bully pulpit to convict this person. And I think we need more of that in American justice. We need more of that in our society and less trying people in the press. And, I, and I've been guilty of it. You know, I've been, a, I've been a defense counsel. I've been a prosecutor. And I've made statements in the press. I've been guilty of that, too. Um, but in this particular case, I think that they're really going to have a strong they're going to have a strong presentation and people are going to this. This is probably going to be a televised trial, Joe. You can just imagine that it's going to be on TV, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Well, an interesting perspective. Jeffrey Lustig, an attorney who's been both a prosecutor and a, def- a criminal defense attorney and not involved in this case, but has been watching it like the rest of us. Really appreciate you joining us, Jeff. As I said, really interesting, uh, interesting perspective of all this that we've been watching unfold. Yes, and I think that this case will be around probably for the next year. So um, by all means, let's talk again soon.